Exodus chapter 20. To this point in our journey through the book of Exodus, Israel's story has read something like a raft ride on a raging river. We've been barreling forward on the fast-moving currents through a rocky gorge carried along by these riveting narratives. Think through them again. We have seen ten miraculous judgments by God as He brings the greatest power on earth, Egypt, to her knees. And then we've seen the glory cloud of Israel come, the presence of God to protect and lead His people. We have seen the crossing of the Red Sea and the drowning of the Egyptian army. We have seen the miraculous provision of God in the desert bringing bread from heaven for His people and meat to eat out in the desert and water from a rock. And we've seen the military defeat of Amalek. Then we've seen Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19, thunder and lightning and earthquake and trumpet blast, fire and smoke announce the awesome presence of God. And from that mountain of fire, God announces ten words, ten commandments that detonate with power and glory as they cascade down upon the Israelites who stand at the foot of the mountain, quaking in fear. But as we come to the end of Exodus chapter 20, it is as if this raging river spills slowly into a wide and calm stretch of water where we encounter a lengthy section of rules that appear to have nothing in the world to do with us. Victor Hamilton likens our reading of Exodus 21 through 23 to the way people eat fish. Exodus chapter 20 is the meat. Exodus chapters 21 through 23 are the bones. This section, he says, strikes many as unedifying, unpalatable, anachronistic, and hence disposable. And to the anxious preacher who canoes these backwaters, he does little to encourage us. Hamilton continues, It is difficult to conceive of these three chapters as a gold mine for expository preaching. I didn't like reading those words. Well, we know that every passage of Scripture is not equally applicable, is it, to us as believers, or equally beneficial. But all Scripture is profitable to our walk with God, and so we enter these backwaters of Old Covenant law with expectation, and I think rightly so. I'd like you to picture, as we enter into this section, an aging man who pulls up in his car at an empty house in a small town. It's a dignified man. It appears in his 60s. A man that has succeeded in life, it is evident to just look at him. But as he strolls up to the house, he stops for a moment and he looks at it with a long, hard look as the memories go through his mind. This house is empty now. His old and widowed father just passed away the week before. This was his home. And he enters the house and begins the process of cleaning everything out. Putting everything in boxes and working through and just starting the process today. And the memories are so many. And he comes to what was once upon a time, many years ago, his own bedroom. And he goes into the closet and finds way back at the back of the closet a box. And it has his things in it. His old baseball glove and baseball cap and some cards and games and little things that he remembers and the memories flood back again. And there in that box is a piece of paper, now yellowed with time and falling apart, but he sits down on the edge of the bed and he begins to read. And he realizes and remembers that these were some rules that his father gave him a very long time ago. You will do your homework daily. You will brush your teeth every night before bed, whether you think you should or not. You will not leave your socks and underwear on the floor. 
You will never again fasten a tire iron to your cat's tail. And the man chuckles as he reminisces and remembers these rules. And as he reads, he begins to see this list of rules with new eyes. They're all outdated. They're all really meaningless to him now. But he begins to see his father's wisdom in these old rules. As he reads this old yellowed piece of crumpling paper, he senses his father's spirit. He senses his wisdom and he senses his love. And he gives thanks for a man who directed him in good paths. The laws that we come to in Exodus chapter 20, and as we follow through to chapter 23, are obsolete for us on this side of the cross in many respects. We don't build altars any longer. There is no need for any altar for those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't own slaves. We don't worry about our ox goring a neighbor. That's not kept me up at night recently. But if we listen closely to these ancient laws, we can discern the wisdom of our Heavenly Father. So ask as you read, how does this passage reveal the wisdom of God? What evidences do I see of my Father's wisdom and love for His people? His love for His people Israel in this ancient setting is reflective of the love of our Father's heart for us who know Jesus Christ as Savior. We need to remember that this law evidences this love for God. We begin at verse 22 of chapter 20. Chapter 20 and verse 22, down through verse 26, we see what scholars call apodictic law, that is general prescriptions that apply across the board. Then in 21, verse 1, and following through to 22 and verse 17, we have casuistic law, it is called, that is the if-when kinds of laws addressing specific situations. And then at 22 and verse 18, we come back again to apodictic law, these laws that are just general statements. We won't get through this entire section here today, but I'd like to delve fairly far into it and move through it fairly quickly as we come to consider its meaning particularly to us today. But we start at verse 22 of chapter 20 with laws concerning the worship of God. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. Israel has witnessed Dramatic evidence of God's presence on Mount Sinai. She has heard God speak. How foolish, utterly evil it would be for her to worship other gods along with God. No other god of any metal is worthy of her devotion. No other gods. Verse 24, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. Temporary altars is the issue here. Israel, remember, is journeying through the Sinai Peninsula, will be coming back up to the Promised Land in time. And God is laying out provisions here for altars that are temporary. There are to be travelers' altars. And this connects directly, I believe, to the patriarchs and the kind of altars that they built. When Israel gets to the Promised Land, there will be the employment of a less simplistic worship. But for now, she is to remember God in the desert in these simple ways with earthen altars, stones that are not cut. They're not to set down any deep roots here. They're travelers. They're sojourners. They're worshipers of God as they move their way to the promised land. And then, verse 26, he says, You shall not 
go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. There's nothing evil about steps. In fact, steps will be permitted. In Leviticus chapter 9, the temple will have steps. That is not what God is saying here, but at this place, in this transitional traveling time, the issue is that Israel was to have nothing to do with the ritual nakedness that marked the service of priests in other religions. Nor was she to build steps that would be so permanent on her journey. The fertility religions in particular... Worship was often all about nakedness. For Yahweh, it was always about covering nakedness and sin, beginning at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. So you're not to follow these patterns of the religions around with ritual nakedness. That would seem very unconservative to us. In their setting, that was very conservative. That is, a priest who would wear adornments was the one who was being liberal and strange and unusual. This will not happen with you. The service of God, the worship of God, has always been about covering nakedness as an image of shame, Genesis 3 and verse 21. God will later, in fact, as steps come into play, will command that the priests wear undergarments to hide that nakedness as they walk up the steps so that no one will see up their robe. But for now, the rule is to simply avoid steps altogether on their way to the promised land. We come then to laws concerning slaves. Chapter 21. And we need to stop for just a moment and consider the culture. There's much that misses us here, and we're really in bad shape if we don't understand the unique culture of that day. Slavery was an integral aspect of the economic structures of the ancient world in which Israel lived. Slavery was not race-oriented. We are almost incapable of thinking any other way. We think of slavery as such a wicked institution, in part because of the experience of our own nation. But slavery was not race-oriented. It was economically oriented and determined. To abolish slavery in that day would spell the economic ruin of the culture and the livelihood of a significant percentage of the population. Imagine today, I don't know that it's all that far off for us to imagine people in our own setting, our own culture, who are in utter bondage to debt. I think if we went to people whose lives were entirely controlled by debt and said, would you be willing to just forget all debt, forget all economic issues for the moment, and live for six years under someone else's direction? I bet there'd be a lot of takers. And in the ancient world, though a very different setting, there were a lot of takers. There were people who were willing to work for a period of time for others. It was slavery. It wasn't pretty. But depending on one's master, it could work out quite well, and we will see that here as we work our way through. So we have to think of a little different orientation. There were not people in this period of time who were carrying signs around saying, end slavery. This just wasn't the culture of the day. Is this to say then, as God gives laws for slavery, that he favors slavery? Well, a father might give laws to his children about what to do when they get in a fight. Does that mean that he favors fighting? No, there's legislation here for what is essential for them. Slavery was a reality in Israel's world, and she needed God's counsel on how to use this situation properly as a kingdom of priests representing God to the world around. And so, verse 1, we read that now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Six years, he's to be released At no cost, no ransom needs to be paid. Very unusual law in this setting and day. Verse 3, if he comes in single, he should go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. Again, in the culture of that day, this was liberal provision. A slave could find food, shelter, clothing, employment, and marriage in a six-year period of time for he and his family and then be released to freedom with his family. This is God's provision in the day. Verse 4, If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. This is hard for us to appreciate. It's a primitive law for a specific era. 
But to think of it a bit, if slaves had the right to take their families into freedom with them, masters would do what? They just simply would never give them the opportunity to marry. And I'm aware of no law that gave masters the right to force marriage upon their slaves. Marriage is a decision a slave can make with full knowledge of what the law includes. And there is also no reason to insist that a freed slave in this situation could never again see his family. What is more, he had another option that God provides here in verse 5. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, ear piercing, and he shall be his slave forever. Now, the love here is probably to be understood in legal terms, not in emotional, romantic terms. I happen to love my wife and want to stay here, but rather an idea of le- in a legal sense that I have chosen to stay with my family and my master. Now, notice there what it says. It says, I love my master. I have chosen to stay with my master. He realizes that he has life pretty good, this slave. A slave has the power to willingly choose to raise his family in a setting where someone else worries about the burdens of freedom. And he makes that choice. That is available to him. Verse 7, When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Now that sounds so cruel and heartless to us, we can hardly read those words. They make your heart hurt to think of selling your daughter as a slave. But again, think in terms of the economic situation of the day. This was something that was widely practiced and seen in many senses as the most wise and loving thing to do for a daughter, depending on the economic status of the family. It misses us, and thank God it does. I'm glad we don't live under this law. But this was the setting of the day. Verse 8, if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. That is, a man who violates his covenant of marriage with a slave can sell her back to her family, but he cannot sell her to a foreign people. This is protection for the girl, is what it is. As God finesses the edges of slavery here. He provides unique protection for such a violated woman. And again, this was not at all unusual by way of arranging marriages, to do so within the confines of slavery. Verse 9, If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. Remember here's the setting contractual marriages. This is not a period of romantic marriages. This is a period where fathers orchestrate and order the marriage of their daughters, and it was not uncommon for a man to purchase a young woman as a slave, intending her to become the wife of his son. This would reduce his bride price, that is, the price he would have to pay for her if she was uh, fully grown. And it would also, frankly, help this father to make sure this young woman fit within the confines of his family, that she knew how to operate in his tent. And so they would often purchase a young girl. This is not a historically opportune period for romance, is it? And we understand that, but this is the arrangements of the day. This is the way it worked. But fathers who did this had to render to such a woman all the rights of a daughter, had to treat her in that way. Verse 10 If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. He loses this wife, he loses this slave. It's ugly, it's not what it ought to be. Life isn't what it ought to be. In our own setting, we live in a culture that is riddled with divorce and dealing with all of the implications of that. But here in this setting, it's no different. There are relationships that broke down, but when they did, he was not this this man who has broken faith with his wife, who is a slave, is not to treat her as a slave, but is in fact to let her go to freedom. This is magnanimous provision on the part of God in the context. Now let's stop for just a moment. Israel's slavery laws 
were not radically distinct from the context of the day. I mean, it wasn't like there was a line of slaves waiting to get into Israel because the laws were so superior to the laws of other nations around. They weren't. God's laws are time-bound. They are guidelines permitting Israel to live with her neighbors in that context. They're not universal and they're not immutable laws. Think on the earlier illustration of the son and his father. As he reads this list of rules, these are primitive, time-bound rules. No one needs to talk to him about not torturing cats anymore. No one needs to tell him to pick up his underwear and socks off the floor of his bedroom every night. These are no longer necessary for him. He's moved on. He's matured. It's a new day. And in world history, it will be the revelation of God in Jesus Christ grounded in this body of law which will eventually deal the decisive blow to slavery. That is, the evidences of it are already here in these guidelines. And when Christ comes, there is a new day. And the very foundation of slavery begins to crumble. It takes many, many generations for this to happen. But there is, as it were, a twinkle in God's eye as He legislates a common practice with characteristic grace in such a way that will eventually destroy slavery. But not yet. It's not time yet. Not now. Eventually. Laws concerning capital punishment come at verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willingly attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. That is, murderers are to be executed for their crime, a universal law already in play, Genesis 9 and verse 6. But if God let him fall into his hand, what's that? What doctrine of Scripture is that indicating? There's providence, isn't it? That means an individual is accidentally killed. And the Bible can picture that as being delivered into the hand of God. That is, God rules sovereignly over life and death. So if there's an unplanned fight and one dies or there's an accidental death, one is not executed for this, for this falls under the general sense of the providence of God. In such cases, there is rather to be a refuge in a city, perhaps referring to Numbers 35 in the cities of refuge, or at least to the altar of verse 14, where one would run to the altar of God as the last place of refuge and hold on. But any murderer who kills with premeditation rip his hands right off the horns of the altar and execute him. He has stood in the place of God to take life. And this one is to give life for life. Verse 15, Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Verse 17, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. This is a high-handed violation of the fifth commandment. We should not, I don't think, understand this as as a young person who just gets angry at mom or dad one night. But this is a high-handed act of rebellion and a direct violation against the fifth commandment. We note here, interestingly enough, and very uniquely, that mom and dad are considered together. They're on equal standing. More on that later. Verse 16, we have a reference to kidnapping. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. God takes kidnapping very seriously. It was common in the ancient world, and no other provision could stop it. Laws concerning restitution begin at verse um, 18. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. What's the point? The guilty party picks up workers' comp and health benefits, as Alan Cole says, and he must pay loss of income and medical expenses. 
But as verse 20 indicates, capital punishment follows when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. So if the man is able to get up and walk and live, then it's clear that the man did not intend murder. But this protection of life applies not only to some other man with whom we're interacting, but even to slaves. If a slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. This is radical teaching in this day. But if the slave survives a day or two, here we come back to again where someone is living for a while, the indication again is that the master did not intend to kill him and so will not be held accountable in the sense that he will not have to be executed. He is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. I think that's to say not that he owns the slave as a human being as much as it is that this man is his worker and he has brought trouble upon his own head by hurting his, um, his slave. Verse 22, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If in this fight, just a picture, and, and again, I, I, don't, I won't mention this, I don't believe again, but... These are, these are guideline laws. There's much more that has to be filled in between the blanks. And the lawyers of Israel would have to do so as they came up with different situations. But here's a situation, very live example, of two men who get in a fistfight and they hit a pregnant woman. And she goes into early labor. If she goes into early labor and delivers a healthy child, she is to be compensated. If she miscarries, the man's to be executed. I think is the meaning of this. If there's injury to the baby, perhaps injury to the mother, then it's this tit-for-tat law, as it's been called, lex talionis, that is eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, whatever it is, you bring discipline upon this individual and whatever he has caused. Now, you say, well, that's, that's kind of, that seems a little... That just doesn't work for us, does it? See, a guy hits, misses a guy with a fist and hits a woman in the eye and blackens her eye, and so they line him up against the wall and whack him in the eye till it gets about as black as hers was. It just doesn't, it doesn't work for us, though I don't know that we're doing a whole lot better in our own culture sometimes with some of the punishments that we give. But what we need to see here is that God takes seriously the offense against another individual and that there is equal justice for all. Remember, we're just looking at the shadows here. The life of an unborn child is of equal status with that of every other human being, and if a woman is injured, she is to be uh, compensated just like a man. In verse 26, we read on, When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Apparently, this isn't one of those slaves that wants to be in his master's house for the rest of his life. But even if he does have an earring in his ear, he's now to be let go free, and this relationship is to be brought to an end. He's been violated, and he's to be compensated. Verse 28, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable any further, that is. Because the ox took human life, no one could profit from its meat. That would be a tremendous financial loss in that setting and a strong statement of the sanctity of human life again. Verse 29, But if the ox had been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner had been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. It's essentially like he took the man's life, because he knew better. High value placed 
on human life. Verse 30, if a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. Apparently, the family of the deceased could allow the owner of the ox to ransom his life from the death sentence. Perhaps they look at the circumstances and realize that there is some level of justification in what has happened, and they can choose this instead. Verse 31, if it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. That's profound. A son or a daughter treated like an adult when it comes to issues of life. Verse 32, if the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. Provision and protection for slaves as well. Verse 33, when a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner and the dead beast shall be his to do with as he chooses. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price and the dead beast also they shall share And apparently both work their way toward picking up another ox at the auction. Or if it is known that the ox had been accustomed to gore in the past, then its owner has not, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Thievery is a serious issue. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. That is, with the sun coming up, there's an ability to discern the situation, to call for help. And even slaves, or even thieves then are cared for under the law. They're at least considered. This thief must make restitution. If he has already squandered what he has gained from the sale of stolen property, then he is to be enslaved. Verse 3, he shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Verse 5, if a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the beast in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns and catches in thorns so that the stack grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. Fairly clear meaning. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, And it is stolen from the man's house. Then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. Now we're not told here how the sinning party is discerned. Perhaps it will be by Urim and Thummim of the priest to determine which person is right or what has happened and taken place here. But at any rate, this person is to be brought to God for judgment. Verse 10, if a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between him and both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. Makes sense. He's lost something that has been given to him to keep. And uh, the question comes up as to whether he's stolen it or not. Verse 12, but if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn by beasts. That is, an animal comes and attacks what is under his care. Uh, The idea is there's perhaps not much that could be done about that. If a man, verse 14, borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. But if the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. That's, I think, where the sentence or the verse should end. 
If a work animal is hired out, that price indicates the owner is taking a calculated risk and there's no damages to be paid. Verse 15b in the Miller translation reads, If it was hired, it came for its hiring. And that's the idea here, that it's already been rented out and therefore the risk has been taken. Verse 16, If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to be married and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Interesting law that keeps immorality at bay. A young man sees a young woman that he's attracted to and seduces her and they sleep together. He has got one heavy fine to pay. And so it keeps at bay immorality outside of wedlock. Within wedlock it was a more serious matter, but a very serious matter nonetheless. We come then to that last section of law, and we will leave off here for this morning, though I call upon you to really hone in now. Don't check out. We've tried to honor the text of Scripture. Say that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for us in some respect. Not all Scripture is equal in its application to us or in its benefit to us. And that is certainly true of this section. But we have sought to honor the text of God's Word by understanding it in at least a sketchy manner. But what do we say at the end? Primitive. Outdated. No longer necessary. Not very enlightened, it wouldn't appear. But if I've brought you along at all, I hope that you see the justice and the wisdom and the character of God that keeps peeking through. What is the reason for the law? You know that all of this is utterly unnecessary if it is not for Genesis chapter 3. Sin. We don't treat one another as we ought to treat one another. We violate one another's rights and privileges. We don't love God with all of our heart. And so God comes to meet His people Israel. And He issues these laws to keep her on track. And what does she find through it all? That she is a sinner indeed. Whatever God says, she violates. It is a sin to commit idolatry. A failure to love God with all of our heart. It is a sin to lack love for one another. And so the law of God meets His people, and there is a degree of grace in it, the Scriptures teach. In the flow of redemption history, from the ten words on stone, we come then to the Word made flesh in our day. Why is it that these laws are obsolete? Why is it that they seem so unenlightened? Because, did you hear it in John 1 and verse 17 this morning? The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 5 and verse 17, Jesus could not be more clear than to say, I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it. I have come to fill it up. I have come to fulfill all of its righteousness in me, the Son of God. Let's go to Romans chapter 10 and verse 3. As we consider that truth, now having come to know Christ as Savior, having come to rest in His salvation by grace, Romans chapter 10 and verse 3, as Paul writes of the Israelites, he says, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness as we read last week. That is, there is a righteousness which comes from God to which we must submit. And this righteousness because of sin is never realized through our obedience. We are called to obedience. We are held accountable to the law of God. The Israelites are held accountable to this law. But they never kept it. It continued to violate. But now we read in glorious Words, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He is the end of the law. He is the Word made flesh. Grace and truth come through Christ. 
There is a grace in the Old Testament, but it is replaced by grace, by a heightened grace from God that comes in Jesus. A righteousness from Him that permits the fulfillment of the law in Christ to become our own in a unique way as the Spirit of God's presence resides within us and fulfills the righteousness of God step by step, day by day, in Christ. Shadowy indicators are found here of that righteousness, of the kind of people that God wants us to be. What, are, what, what peeks through this passage? What are the kind of people our Father is leading us to be? Think again of the man with his paper. What laws do we see peeking through to lead us to be godly people? We see from this section itself that people are more important than physical property and animals. People are more important than physical property and animals. They are always held higher in God's order. You don't execute a man for burning a field. You do if his anger leads him to strike another man and he kills an unborn child. People are more important than property and animals. Secondly, we learn the lives of children, women, and slaves are as valuable to God as the life of a man. This is radical thinking in that day. In our day, we take this for granted. We celebrate it as a culture, often in wrong ways, but it's there. Why is it there? This is the word that Jesus Christ has brought to us, but it was peeking through in the old grace. It was there. We find here, peeking through thirdly, that it is negligent, that negligent selfishness is sin, that we are our brother's keeper. And everything that I do for economic gain or for personal profit, I must think about others around me. As we fulfill the righteousness of the law, it may come down to simply how do you deal with your dog in the backyard? Are people more important than animals? Does negligence involve selfishness that harms others? In everything that I do, I don't think about me first. I put others ahead of myself and I ask the question, am I being selfish and harming other people? Because God has created people in his image, all people. Makes no difference of age, makes no difference as to their sex, makes no difference as to their economic standing. Am I troubling or harming or putting other people at risk? I'm not seeing life the way God does if I am. We see poking out here in the whole context of slavery that God is just, but is not necessarily fair. From our setting, from our situation, these laws about slavery, frankly, admit it. We're really struggling in our heart to say, God, you blew this here. You shouldn't be talking this way. Don't you understand? Let's just stop and remember where we got that understanding. Was from our Father. Through time, He brought it to be and taught His people the importance of freedom and the evil of slavery. But little by little, And in it all, we see that God is willing to legislate in such a way that says that people are not always entirely, absolutely equal in every right and responsibility and social undertaking. We have a God who sees structural authority in society. There is government, there is family government, there is church government, and not everyone is treated entirely fairly. Now, I use fairly in one sense of the word. That is, children, for instance, are to obey their parents. We have people in our culture, our society, the UN, to name one, who has a really major problem with that issue. Because they understand that for children to obey their parents is to say that all are created in the image of God. They wouldn't say that. But all are created in the image of God, but not all have the same responsibilities or authority. We see God teaching us there. We see the characteristic brushstrokes of his wisdom. It's not all fleshed out. This is teeth-brushing kind of stuff. That's not going to be needed under Christ, but it's there. 
And in these laws, as I've mentioned, there's a great distinction between Israel and the people around her. We find many parallel laws. In fact, the critics of Scripture just love this section. They jump all over it saying, look, Hammurabi said this, and these people said this, and here, and here's parallel. No kidding. They're all created in the image of God, and they're going to get pieces of the right picture along the way. And God has a common grace which he showers upon all people everywhere to some degree. But you know what's so different is Hammurabi's code, famous as it is, many school children will recognize the name. There's a relief at the beginning, a picture basically, of Hammurabi receiving from the sun god Shamash the commission to write the law code. Guess where Shamash shows up again? At the very end. He's got nothing to do with the law. The law all comes out of the head of Hammurabi in his great wisdom. But we noticed again the pieces through here. There's a difference, isn't there, in the way that Exodus reads. Exodus chapter 21 and verse 1, for instance. We see God showing up right in the text. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, you shall, he shall serve for six years and the like. God is talking to Moses here. Notice verse 13, where this becomes very pointed. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I, who's speaking, God, I will appoint for you a place in which he may flee, but if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar. God's talking here. This isn't the law of Moses in the sense that wasn't Moses a great lawyer who came up with these laws. From start to finish, this is the law of God. This comes from him. This is his word to his people. And the whole point then is that the law is relational. Not merely among one another, but it is relational in our, to God. And we come back to Christ. Because in the law, we find that our relationship with other people, frankly, stinks. And our relationship to God in our own sinful nature continues to fall short as we grab onto one idol after another. We don't love God with all of our heart, and we don't love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so the law comes in to condemn because we fall short of its standard over and over again. But John chapter 1 and verse 17, which we read earlier, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's right hand. He has made him known. The word has been revealed. If you'll plow with me, this is a long section. Just one more moment. In Romans 10 and verse 4, this one who has come is the end of the law for us. And so what does that now look like? What does the mature man in Christ go after in this life? Not laws about slaves, but let's go to Romans chapter 12. As we read in verse 10 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, we come to chapter 12 and just get a glimpse of what it looks like now. Think of the man at his father's house. No longer the need for this yellowed old sheet of elementary rules. Now the man is moving past in maturity and is living out the very essence of what his father intended. And what is that essence? To give just one picture to it, think of it. In the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, and honoring the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, let love, 12.9 of Romans, be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, all of which have been fleshed out to some degree in the section that we've read and that we will continue to look at. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So we go out through these doors and we do not take with us Exodus chapter 20 and following that we've read today and make sure that our ox doesn't gore somebody and that we treat our slaves well. We go out from here in the love of Jesus Christ to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And as the Spirit moves us and teaches us how to live, we do it because we want to. We do it by His grace. And it calls upon us then as we close this lengthy discussion to consider Am I walking in the Spirit? Am I walking in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I fulfilling His will for my life in my relationship to others and in my relationship to God? Is this a day of repentance? Is this a day where we need to turn from specific sin? May God jog us and move us and convict us to do so today. Let's bow for prayer. We pray, dear Father, for anyone who knows not Christ as Savior and ask that you would teach them how far short of the glory of God they fall and that you would bring them to the grace and mercy of your kindness in Jesus Christ. Help them to see that the death and resurrection of Christ is the start of a whole new way of living. I pray that you would bring them to simple faith to trust what Jesus has done in their behalf. As you lead, as you open eyes, as you draw them in, as you will. Father, for those of us who know you, I pray that the Spirit of God would be convicting and teaching us how it is that we are to love our neighbor as ourself and how it is that we are to worship you alone. May prayers of repentance ascend, and may the glory of our Savior be seen here. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.